unhappiest in the saddle. <laughs> a fellow sportsman. I am an FBI agent. Great Scott. What do you say we cut the chit-chat a-hole? Dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Come with me if you want to live. Hello, and welcome to Retro Ramble. I'm Charlie McGee. I'm George McGee. Or is he? Or am I? We're not quite sure, because tonight, ladies and gentlemen, George and I are going to be questioning who we are and what the hell is going on, because we are reviewing 1982 John Carpenter's The Thing. Oh my god, I can't believe it's taken us this long to get to this film, but what are you going to say? We, we have threatened to do it for some time. Uh, I remember we were going to do this early days. I think there was somebody who was actually pushing us who'd like written a book on it and wanted to do it. Yeah, there were some guys that were making a, a documentary about it. it and they wanted to co- record us recording and then that never materialised. Um, and it probably would have made sense to do it last year because it would have been 40 years. But Shut hey, up. Hello, <laughs> what are you, you going to do? George and I are maverick renegades who are always going against the grain, kind of like the McCready's. Um, (laughs) So, I mean, this is a big film for me. It's a big film for George. It's a big film for everybody. So if you've been following us on Patreon, you'll know that we have covered Halloween. Um, Sorry, John Carpenter's Halloween. John Car- is that one called John Carpenter's Halloween? It or is. is it, just Halloween? it is. Okay, okay, he is very precise about where, the his, self-promotion. where his name features. So um, we're going to get it into a lot of different areas. Um, there'll be some production chat. There'll be some special features, I think. There'll be some coulda, woulda, shoulda. There'll definitely be some first memories. And then there might be some extra bits that we just throw in because... Um, it's not really me. Um, so, anything else you want to mention, George? It's 1982. Uh, I was three. Uh, you were still a twinkle in dad's eye. You hadn't been born yet. But, I mean, this film hit us later in life, obviously, when we were uh, in our uni days. Um, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We're going to get into all of that. So, have um, you... Uh, do we need to do a disclaimer? If you've yeah. not listened before... Yeah. Uh, so if you have listened listen before, uh, first of all, thank you. Uh, if you're a first-time listener, you might not be sure what you've got yourself into. So here's George with just a quick reminder on some general housekeeping. So uh, Retro Ramble is a light-hearted look back at the films of our youth. Uh, so Charlie and I are brothers. And yeah, we re- reminisce about the films that we grew up with. It's a chance to reappraise them, see you know what what made them so great. Do they still hold up? Have they been remade, spun off into a Netflix series, that kind of thing? Yes, um, yes, and probably yes, probably yes. <laughs> um, so yes, I say it's a light-hearted look back. So there will be some juvenile humour. There might be some swearing, but we we aim to entertain, but we also aim to throw in a bit of trivia as well. Um, but uh, you know, buckle up, and we hope you enjoyed the show. Excellent. So we like to start off to set the mood to share with you the original theatrical trailer. Do we have it ready, George? I've got it loaded up on a bunch of chunky cassettes, or maybe a BBC computer. BBC knows? computer that's going nuts. Okay, yeah. uh, but it's, it's very accurate in its predictions. It's, uh, <laughs> it's whirring. It's it's very very quick and very precise. George with text is in, on screen. George is in the computer room because that's how big the computer is. Yeah. Okay. Um, right. Well, on with the show. Let's hit it. Discovered something. 
for 100,000 years, it was buried in the snow and ice. Now it has found a place to live, inside, where no one can see it, or hear it, or feel it. I know I'm human. Some of you are still human. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to, but it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's one. You guys gonna listen to Gary? He can beat one of those things! So, George, uh, 1982, John Carpenter's The Thing. I don't know about you, but for me, I feel like the first time I watched this was when, during our uni days in Manchester, I feel like that's when we all got a bit obsessed with the masterpiece that is Carpenter's The Thing. Yeah, I, I, whilst it's not what we would term in retro ramble terms a revelation, it was, yeah, it definitely wasn't something that we we grew up watching when we were young though. I do I don't remember... know why parents didn't put this in front of us. It would have kept well, us I, I, I do actually have a, a memory of being, being a, a, like alone. I think you were, you'd moved uh, to uni. I was at home. I think mum and dad were out and obviously Sophia had moved out a few years previous. I was in the house by myself and channel surfing, as you did back in the day. Does anyone channel surf these days? Does anyone actually watch live TV anymore? That's a different podcast anyway. Um, and I stumbled across uh, the thing and I started watching it because, oh, it's, it's uh, yeah, I've, I've heard people talk about it. I love Kurt it. Russell. Still, I, George still is obsessed with Kurt Russell. But then again, we'll, who, who isn't? We'll, we'll get into that as well. And it was round about just before one of the iconic scenes where they get the the defibrillator out and one of the biggest shocks in the movie where the guy's uh, chest splits open and cutting of the hands and I was freaked out I didn't know what was going on I was too young as we say we, we've talked about you know the fact that you and I are, are not fans of horror, and I was just yeah. like, "Nope, nope, I'm not. Nope, I'm not watching." Nope. This thing. Uh, <laughs> not so t- turned it off and probably put on an Arnie film just to keep myself uh, safe. And so, yeah, it wasn't until I think uh, I was, it might have been just before I went to uni. I remember with, I think it was with either with uh, one of our previous guests. It was either with. Uh, our good friend Andy Hughes, Hughesy, or it might have been James Glendinning, but I remember getting it out on DVD from Blockbuster. Um, and saying of, to you, if you stay and watch this with me, I think I'm ready to give it another Yeah, if, if you hold my hand <laughs> and we have a stiff drink. But no, we were going back through, we were having like, it was a summer where we were Best working summer jo- We were working summer jobs and we were doing movie nights and we were watching it in our old garage, you know, the games room. And I was like, yeah, we've got to tackle this movie. I've heard it's amazing. Um, uh, yeah, and I don't want to watch it by myself. And I don't think James, I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was James. And I don't think he'd seen it either. And I think that obviously speaks volumes that that was, you know, uh, one of those horror films that had even passed him by. And we were both blown away by it. Just like, oh my God, this film is so intense, so gory, but, brilliant you know it's it's uh you know the paranoia you know which obviously we'll get into but i think the time that you and i you were saying we were watching it loads at uni was because and again we can we can cover it later in suspicious spin-offs but uh, um when we were at uni the the game came out yeah that was at the playstation 2 game yes right? yeah the ps2 game came out which was a sequel to the film but even so they actually repackaged i remember they repackaged the film with the same art that the game had it was a ve- very confusing and again i was still as much as i love the film i remember my housemate uh, Adam playing the game and I was just like no I'm not staying to watch this it was yeah very you know survival horror resident evil but it's the fact that 
in the game mechanics, anyone, any of the NPCs could turn into the things completely suddenly. And it was like, shit, any get out moment. of the room. Get yeah. out of the room. Get the flamethrower. I haven't got a flamethrower yet. Run. <laughs> All I've got is a broom. Um, <laughs> Typical PS game. <laughs> yeah. It we kind of had a re- resurgence in the in the early noughties. But again, I say we'll, we'll get to that in, uh, in Suspicious Spin-Offs. Well, I think before we... Um... Before we make our way to production chat, what 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 are we calling it this time? P- production production base production base camp smoldering <laughs> smoldering corp- melted corpse ridden base camp. Uh, yeah. Before we go there, do you want to just set the scene in terms of why it's called John Carpenter's The Thing and what had come before? And I think you mentioned it there, talking about the PS game. Was there a prequel recent film? So. Tell us about the what came before, perhaps. So um, the it's the thing is actually it's well it goes back to a, a novel or a novella. So I think and what's the difference between a novella and a novel? Is it just like a short novel? I think uh, yeah, it's a short novel. So uh, a novella by John W. Campbell called "Who Goes There?" Question mark. Um, and that was, I think that was, yeah, written in the th- late thirties. And as I, I think I mentioned this on our, um, our, pa- our Patreon, uh, episode on Halloween that we have sort of done to tie in with this. It was adapted into a 1951 movie by, uh, Howard Hawks and Christian Nyby, um, called The Thing from Another World. Um, and it was a a film that was close to John Carpenter's heart, and obviously, as we we talked about in in our Halloween because they're watching that, it, they're watching yeah, it in the film Halloween. It, 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 it features more than once, quite a bit. The, the the kids in the film Halloween are watching the thing from another world on the telly. But interestingly, the title on the screen only shows the word "the thing." Even That's what I the, remember. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was quite prophetic because I always thought, oh, well, he always wanted to, that was, it was always on his agenda to to make that film. I thought, but, oh, he'd already done it. When I saw that in Halloween, I was like, oh, right. this must have come after the thing. Well, it actually, reading into it, it was, the, he, it wasn't, uh, whilst he was, um, you know, always in mind for the project. So it was actually bought uh, by Universal, picked up the rights to it in the in the mid 70s. And whilst he was considered in the mid seventies, he was still very much a, a you know, a newbie, a, an indie director. You know, I think he hadn't. In nineteen seventy six, he hadn't even done Halloween by then. So Universal and the producers went to other bigger directors, which I'll get into in uh, Coulda Woulda Shoulda. And f- uh, there were quite a few of these directors and writers took different swings at it. And they weren't very successful, but it was understandably uh, after, well, the project was put on hold after all these sort of passes. But then when Ridley Scott's Alien came out in 1979, Universal were like, well, maybe we should look at this thing again. (laughs) Maybe we could get some of that sweet Alien money. And then obviously by that point, Carpenter had, had, had become big with the success of Halloween. So he was re reapproached and but this was um John Carpenter's first proper studio gig because yeah previously to that so uh Dark Star Assault Precinct 13 uh, Halloween they were all indie pictures you know he, they were all like low budget he'd funded it so it was uh, a big step up uh for for Carpenter but yeah he said Carpenter said of the previous scripts he said they were all awful and they were basically trying to change the story in uh, too much they were ignoring the the key part of the original story was the fact that the thing was a chameleon it could be anyone and even in the the Howard Hawks movie it's more of a like a Frankenstein's monster and they say it's like it's got vegetable genes and it's it's more of like a a half man half vegetable type thing i've i've but watched in the original book it is a shapeshifting yes um... yeah in in the book it's uh, it's a shapeshifter it's it's the fact it's all a, a complete ha- paranoia sort of who done it or who who is it rather than a who who done it yeah so and that was the thing that carpenter wanted to do he loved 
the original 50s movie, but that was his one hang-up was, it's a great movie, but the monster could be a lot better. And then he, you know, from reading the book, he's like, oh, there's, there's so much potential to actually tap into that shapeshifter nature. But then there's obviously John Carpenter sprinkling, sprinkling his own pixie dust on. So what's it going to look like when we actually see it? And yeah, think- and, so, and so that that nicely segues into uh, Rob Bottin. So uh, I think we've talked about Rob Bottin before because his name came up when we were doing American Werewolf. The puppet uh, master, the master of puppets. I think he was 20 when he did The Howling, and I think he was... And then John Carpenter employed him to work on his film, The Fog, which I think was the film he did after Halloween. I think that was 79, maybe. And at the at the time, Carpenter was like said to him, and I think Botine was desperate to work with Carpenter. So like he he pushed hard to get the job on The Fog. And whilst they're working on The Fog, uh, Carpenter was like, yeah, I'm in talks to do the thing and I want you to do the monster. So he was just like, oh, my God. The clever thing that Carpenter did was he got Botine to work with the storyboard artist to map out the transformation sequences so they could say, okay, this is how it's going to look. And, this, and he knew what he'd be able to actually create with his hands or, well, or physically or represent. Well, um, Botine actually says in the in the retrospective on the Blu-ray, like <laughs> Carpenter even says to him, he's like, so you can do all this? And he's like, um, I don't know. <laughs> so like... I, I should be able to do it. And it, you know, it shows you in the in the documentary, it shows you some of the storyboards, and they are pretty much as you see in the film. And I think that's it about this film that everyone talks about the the practical effects are are some of the best, you know, practical effects you'll see in a movie. And whilst in they a horror have... film. In a horror film. Yeah. So it's, I mean, obviously we're quite sci-fi. The only horrors we kind of tolerate here between George and I. Are the ones. I mean, this is my favorite Carpenter film, and it's probably my favorite horror film because I think it's got that Philip K. Dick. It's all the things that George and I like in a sci-fi, you know. So, but for me, it's so gory. I mean, it's so gory. It's 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 like I can tolerate the horror because of everything else that's going on. It's just not. It's not just gory, gory hand hand chopped off monsters for no reason. Like a lot of horror, in my opinion, is. Yeah, my opinion is limited. I get that some people like to be scared. Um. But for me, this is this is Carpenter's best work. It's it's phenomenal. It's funny. I never still find it like I, I haven't. The I'm shock all shocked. Of, yeah, I'm yeah. all shocked by it. Like yeah, um, the shock hasn't worn off. I, I watched it the other night, and stuff you forget because I, I haven't yeah, blanked I it out for good reason. Yeah, so, I haven't watched it in a few years, and I was just like, oh my god, yeah, this film is so gross, but it's so intense, and it's it's. Everything from the sound effects, the squelchiness, and the, the, the hissing, and everything, and just the way it will suddenly transform, and it is very sudden how quickly the the thing can transform and shoot through the floor or or grab yeah. somebody, and the fact that it's like peeling open and and like growing. It's just the fact it's growing appendages, and it's a mixture of shapes. It is some fantastic, it's so grotesque, but fascinating as well at the same time. And I think the the reason why, like you, I, this is, uh, you know, going back, I was just like, yeah, this is definitely, I, th- I think this is John Carpenter's masterpiece. I think it's it's such a masterclass in intention, in just in terms of the dynamic between all the actors. So apparently... Um, they had uh, they spent two weeks uh, rehearsing all the crew to sort of try and work out what how the, what their relationships were like and how they all interacted with each other and who was mates and who wasn't and John Compton said it was like the most prep he's ever had on a film. So yeah, it was it was really interesting that the fact that by doing having that time to rehearse, they could work out. It was like, all right, well, you got you guys are mates. You've never really trusted each other. You're a bit of a stoner, and blah blah. You guys work together, and that helps bring bring out the tension of like these guys just don't trust each other, and things bubbling up to the surface, and then suddenly people turning on each other. It's it really is something. Because yeah, I mean, you it starts off with that that piercing Ennio Morricone. I always yep. say his name wrong. 
and I just love the credits and I just love I love the the tension and the fact that it's turned up to 11 from the off well it's it, it's yeah it sets the stakes very early on the fact that they're so isolated yeah that there's not that they're like well what are we going to do it's like well we've got the helicopter they show that they've got the helicopter they're like well they got the helicopter because that's what I mean it's like comfortable it's like they got the helicopter if anything goes wrong they can always get out of there and then they go to that other place but like I, I just thought watching this because I think it's in the first 15 minutes or first 15 20 minutes that um the gorgeous Kurt Russell and the other I, I everyone in this film apart from um the really young um the guys with him at the end so there's Keith, uh, Keith David no not Keith David no um because I recognize Gary uh, but is yeah, it so, Knowles? So, Knowles? I, 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 I didn't... Um... There's, a, there's a few familiar faces. Obviously, you've got Wilford Brimley. Oh, my God, yeah. The amazing Wilford Brimley. <laughs> yeah, um, who's who's the man on the BBC computer doing the, the, the computations of, yeah. of how quickly it will spread, yeah. 27,000 hours. Um, and, uh, yeah, you've obviously got uh, Keith David, who we've talked about uh, previously, and we'll uh, continue talking about because he's a legend. <laughs> he is a, he is amazing. Um, but yeah, you've got the guy who plays Gary, um, who is uh, I think he's the how dare you, sir? He's the uh, the president in Clear and Present Danger. And I think he's popped up in other things. Like I, I think he's probably been in. He's always been yeah, very well dressed, like stately uh, person or a general stuff. Uh, like that. You've got the the dog guy. Um, that's Peter Massa. He I think he was was he the dad and the wonder years maybe yes no Uh, somebody no maybe what was what was he in he was definitely in tv anyway yeah but then you've got mccready um and there's just a bit where he's talking i think they're on the way to the helicopter and it's a bit jack burtony but it's like that's just how kurt russell talks shall we talk about kurt are you ready are you ready i mean i don't know if it's possible but i just find myself falling in love with Kurt Russell more and more as I get older and the more I watch his films and maybe it is just watching more of him like in John Carpenter films but he's just so cool in this the fact that he's just like he's he's just a he's a bastard in this he's he's hard drinking he hates everybody he's miserable but he's he... I think I think the thing is everybody everybody either wants to fuck him or they hate him because he doesn't want to fuck them. I, that, <laughs> I put all of them into that category. It's like but, the way I they mean, look, the way they look at him. I mean, he looks, he's got, he's got the beard, he's got the long hair, but he's got this ridiculous hat, but he somehow pulls it off. He, Can we talk, we've got to talk about that because like, it's so practical because he's got the hoodie and the hat. I'm like, that could be 2023. Some guy out of the festival. He, he does that look could, like, that, <laughs> he does look like he's a fan of IPAs. He does look like he's a trendy hipster. Yeah. And, With and the you goggles, can... he's got this hoodie up and he's wearing a cowboy hat. It's like, did you just come from Creamfield? Yeah. <laughs> it's Abs- like, absolutely. I, and I'm pretty sure he is single handedly influencing all of current hipster culture because that's the kind of guy Kurt is. Yeah. He's, he's more than man. He's, he's myth. He's legend. He's, he's, he's pure Kurt. He's amazing. Okay. Okay, okay, calm down, buddy. Uh, well, slight, uh, did I say I'm in love with him? No, don't, not, enough, don't, not please, enough. Please don't tell my wife. Um, no, but he is majestic. He's beautiful and a different role. Very much, I mean, I said there was a little bit of Jack Burton creeping out in one of his, uh, some of the things you were saying, but other than that, very different role and there's a lot of close-ups on camera for all of the actors. So that's what I wanted to say about the mm. cast. You were talking about the amount to spend some time together. The way the camera moves around, it keeps reminding you that they're all in this together. They're yeah. all questioning each other. They're all paranoid to hell about each other. And then obviously when you're watching this the second or third time, you're like, yeah. and you're all going to die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, well, interestingly, uh, whilst, you know, obviously Kurt had worked with, with Carpenter a couple of times by that point. So they'd done the Elvis movie and they'd done Escape from New York. He wasn't initially involved. He was helping John Carpenter with like casting suggestions just as a mate. He was helping out and they were, struggling to find the right person for McCready and Carpenter was like suddenly turned around I was like well why don't you do it and he was like oh yeah that's a good point I could do it <laughs> so yeah it wasn't a they hadn't started of oh yeah this is going to be our next movie together it just organically happened that way well I mean the we talked about Keith David briefly I, I, I got around to watching Nope the other day where he's got a very brief role in that 
Um, but he's still making movies. We talked to him about on the other car- John Carpenter. They live. It's just like uh, I've enjoyed a lot of his voice in Rick and Morty. You remember me? I'm Reverse Giraffe, um, and he's also the president. He is the Rick president in, in the Rick and Morty. Um, but such gravitas in that voice. Every single thing he says, you're hanging on every word. But there's there's a bit of that with him and Kurt, and I think it's great you've got that dynamic throughout. But I like this sort of over the the shoulder camera work, and then, as you say, a master of tension that we we talked about this on our Patreon episode with Halloween. That there's like he can just he can do things with the yeah. camera, like he can just build tension and build tension and build tension, and then in this film, like much more than in any other carpenter I can remember when it goes off it it fucking goes off it goes nuts like what i was thinking watching it this time round was i was thinking about the psychology a lot more and the paranoia maybe yeah. it's because i'm reading a, a, an amazing philip k book at the moment which george has recommended me are we both reading it at the moment i i've i finished it okay don't uh, or, yeah. or have i finished it you're not sure is am it i am a, i reading it right now is it did it happen in the past anyway <laughs> ladies and gentlemen you get the idea that we're on a proper paranoia trip anyway and we stick this film on but that's what hit me this time around was um yeah just was that was the fact that when they find that carcass in the but in the, the twisted in, carcass yeah it's like what would everyone be thinking there and what i like about it is it's not like we got to get out of here we got to get out of here we got to get they're like scientists you know they're up on this thing they're like well let's find out what went wrong what you know let's yeah. let's take some blood samples and um you wouldn't think anything wrong of a husky you know and like, yeah. Well, yeah that guy was obviously crazy you know they've obviously gone nuts and they go and check out the base and it verifies the fact that they've all killed each other that the dog there's probably nothing wrong with the dog and that the guy who like came out of a helicopter with a grenade obviously lost his mind so um yeah i mean so I, that's all i want to say what was it like for you watching it this time around because we've watched it a lot of the years we've watched it together I'm sure you've watched it. We've watched it separately over the years. I watched this, I think, about four or five years ago. Yeah, uh, I mean, obviously, there's yeah the things we've we've touched on. Obviously, there's a the haunting Ennio Morricone school, which, as uh, I said in our other episode on Halloween, that you know it's a, it's a rarity that John Carpenter doesn't get involved, doesn't get his synth out. Um, but it's it's another a brilliant electronic school. It's yeah, it's very haunting and, and adds to the tension. Yeah, there's there's so much dread and whilst there's not i was gonna say there's not your typical horror tropes of like shock moments there are different moments that are shocking for different reasons so i don't know if that leads us into talking about some of the the key moments yeah i mean we were talking about botine before i think what's nuts is the fact that there's all the tension and you see, cause that's the thing, the car, what, the reason that moment with the carcass, it's kind of like, you know, sometimes when you start watching a new series these days, they very, I can remember with this happened with the walking dead, try to watch that with my wife. And in the first episode, they like, they show you, if you're going to watch this series, be expected to see gore and blood yeah. and body and corpses and zombies. And she's like, I don't think this is me. And I was like, okay. Uh, so it's like, I feel like it's like that from the very off, they're showing you, are you comfortable with this sort of image? Cause if you're not, this film's going to be a bit of a ride for you. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just, I mean, the boating stuff just escalates. Cause there's the, uh, as you say, do you want to talk about that scene with the, the resuscitation? Well, well that's, uh, it's kind of linked. So let's talk about the masterclass intention. The one of the the best scenes in this film is the the blood test scene. Yeah. And it's funny thinking about this. Is this is um, one of Tarantino's favorite films, and he would actually go on. Of bizarrely, it's it's a big influence on the Hateful Eight, which is set in a remote snowy location and stars yeah. Kurt Russell. And he also actually uses some of Aaron, uh, Morricone's soundtrack on on that film as well but you can see where tarantino gets those you know he's he tarantino's a masterclass of of tension in glorious bastards and and indeed the hateful eight but yeah that scene is just you're you have no idea who it's gonna be you always you think oh it's it's clearly gonna be the guy the the dog guy because he's got so close to them and and he gets shot 
without a verification. And then you're like, oh, it's definitely going to be Childs. It's definitely going to be Gary. It's got to be Gary. Yeah, got to be Gary. Yeah. Gary's acting funny. And the way it goes through them one by one, and it's just that building up of testing, keep testing. And even just the the simple thing of watching them all draw blood, it's very painful even, to watch. Yeah, but that, that, that way cuts the thumb and he's like, I don't think I could do that. I don't think I could let that amount of thumb out of just, my... Just just a little prick, though. Just, Why yeah. slice open your whole thumb? Why do they need two millimetres deep of yeah. like my Oof. own blood? I just, I just feel like up until that scene, because there's the bit where the dog goes in the room and you just see the silhouette of the guy, so you're not sure who it is. Yes. You think you know who it is, but it could actually be like three different characters. And, and apparently what, they got... what I got a... this time. They got a completely. It wasn't any of the actors. It yeah, was a random person. They got so to sit because they. He's like, I don't want it. It could be anyone. So it's got to be ambiguous, and that's yeah about <clears throat> about this film. The fact that it all it all kind of obviously gets there in the end, and it really really escalates. But is, is the way in that blood testing you've got the um the flamethrower and he's having, so to, having to do igni- a lot. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's and- having to keep igniting it and it's the you can hear the constant burning of of the yeah, the, the sound design is amazing. But it's also a good bit of misdirection because um they cut to when the they reveal when they do the blood test and the thing jumps out of the blood dish. It's a fake hand. So Kurt Russell's cradling a fake hand and obviously the, the the creature jumps out of the, the hand and it's just the way it's been edited and everything that's going on, you don't notice it switches to a fake hand of holding the jar. Oh, wow. So it's really cleverly done. And then... That's a brilliant effect. I, and then well, obviously it turns into... It's not Gary. It's uh, it's the other guy, the, the stoner guy. And it's just the way he starts like convulsing and they're all t- tied to the Let sofa. me out, let it's me out. It's so terrifying. You just like, I just remember watching that for the first time, just going, oh God, oh God. And and obviously the flamethrower is not behaving. Um, yeah. And then I just think that scene, which I thought would I'd never forget, I totally forgot about the guy's head opening up. And then eating another guy, and like their your reaction, even to this day, watching this again, is kind of the same of you know what the, everybody else in the same room is just like. Yeah, like, uh, and I can't. I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, the the resuscitation scene is the following scene, um, where yeah, it just gets to oh, he's having a heart attack. He, it's just been too much, and get the paddles out. Get the paddles out. And again, it's it's a masterclass that we've talked about Rob Boutin stuff, but yeah, the 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 chest opens up to be giant fangs, and they just off. eat it up. Yeah, it is earlier. I think that's what causes the blood test. Um, and again, it's it's great movie making because they switch out the guy playing the doctor, and they got an amputee, a double amputee, and put a mask of the actor over it, and just for that scene of him pulling his hands out out the creature and you don't even notice the mask and it's only when you go back and watch it and then you've got yeah the whole thing of the the head falling off the the tendrils and everything's popping and then the head just grows some spider legs and some some eyes on stalks and it's only summed up in that yeah that line you've got to be fucking kidding (laughs) yeah it's Um, uh it cannot be stopped and and it's just the way it like peeps out from under the table like <laughs> and, then sc- me, and then skulls off like I'm that, out of here. That to me is very uh it's almost like big that that, that raises its head in sort of big trouble, his sort of sense of humor is like, well, I feel like that well that that's why I believe this is his masterpiece because like he hadn't gone into that satire level, like because it was in his work. And yeah. he's like, oh no, no, that'll be we need a little bit to relieve some tension, so let's have it here. But then he goes he leans right into it in Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, no, I think there is some great. I've I've put that in my notes. There's some great black humor. Like there's the shot where they they lock up Blair and you know Wilford Brimley in in the store cupboard. Yeah, and they open the like the slot to look in. He sat there. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm much better. And then just hanging next to him is a noose that he's created for himself. <laughs> he's like, I'm much better. Let me out. And he's like, No, <laughs> no. So yeah, and I think there are there are other bits that are just like yeah, I say the you've got to be fucking kidding me is such a great line because you everyone's thinking that, 
And yeah, it's it's the way it all all works together. There's bits that I I say I have watched this a few times, but there's bits I forget, like the fact that the mini spaceship that Blair's building that he's, he's underneath tunneled. his yeah, and he's yeah. in the tunnel he's made. Yeah, um, out of snow. Yeah, it's that, uh... that's all nuts. And yeah, I do remember the final face off bit. Which is yeah, it's the way. Because you're say, kind it, of relieved when the film gets to that bit. You're like, okay, we're in the last act now. There isn't much because le- the middle of this film, you're like, what's going on? I'm yeah, well, thinking that this time because you know you see the the slider of like where the film's at. I was like, how much have I got to go? Because this is one shocking me, and I know that we haven't even got there yet. But it's it's weird that I I I only I think it really sort of dawned on me watching it this time round, which is quite silly, but. It's the fact that they kind of realize, I think, in the it was at the start of the third act, it's like, no, we're all gonna we're, die. We're all gonna die. This is a suicide mission. We're, we're not getting away from here. We're, because... Yeah, we're, we're we're not, and we we can't let it get away. Yeah. Um, we can't let it freeze again. So we have to set this whole place on fire. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's... New, new kid, um, I don't know about you, George. I was thinking very much of hearing um, Hicks. Hicks take off nuke it from orbit <laughs> you know well yeah, that's it and but i love Kill it with the, fire <laughs> i mean obviously they've got they've got some some weapons they've got some trusty flamethrowers but the fact is yeah they and they've got some explosives but yeah they don't have military Guns. yeah you know um military stuff so yeah it's it's, it's the fact that it it becomes that desperation of we've just got to lock this down uh, until we're all dead sort of type thing and it's it's so bleak, but it's it's so well done, and and obviously you're you're left with that amazing cliffhanger ending. Well, before we get to that, can we talk about the bit in the in the generator chamber? Because that to me was the scene I'd forgotten about. Now, why would I forget about like what, what goes the, on in that scene? What with the giant thing? The giant thing, but also there's that scene where um where he is it. Blair with the Blair hand, t- with the hand inside this cheek. So I was looking at it this time. It's like it's so clever, like how they've obviously left grafted, enough. They've grafted additional skin on top of Gary's face so that Blair's hand looks like it's inside his face, and he's obviously injecting tons that. of the thing into Gary. Yeah, and then when he walks away, he's just dragging him by his head. We don't even see what happens to Knowles, and t- and then we think, oh. Knowles is going to appear and we're yeah. going to have a scene because this is where he second guesses you we're going to have a scene where either Knowles or Gary's going to appear and we're waiting is McCready going to work out that it's the thing and then no it's just like fucking Godzilla coming under the ground towards yeah, him really just amped up destroys all of the amazing weaponry that he's got he's got the TNT to blow it up yeah. he's got the fucking Molotovs and it just takes them all out and then goes the, the, there's the other sort of black Sw- swipe the other <laughs> yoink I think yeah. I'll be taking that TNT thing yeah so I, I, I don't know why but I'd forgotten about that I'd, I'd, I hadn't forgotten about the blood test scene or the arms being amputated but I'd forgotten about the level of gore in both of them you know mm. it's just like amazing yeah, yeah no it's um i mean yeah there, there's 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 so much to to enjoy about this film i mean it is it, there is similarities with alien i can see that you know in terms of the the bleakness the you know the claustrophobic setting the realistic working characters these don't feel like yeah typical it's horror characters you have as you said you know earlier like they're scientists you know well obviously mccready's a, a pilot but they're all practical. They're not, and whilst yes, there might be a little bit of panic. They're not making stupid decisions, or they're mostly. Well, they're the whole thing, the way they do the tests and the way they work it out, and the way they yeah. come to that, it it is quite for me quite scientific, or like engineers at the very least. It is yeah. quite technical, methodical. So yeah, is there is there anything else you want to talk about in in the film itself? In terms of best bits, I think we've covered all of them. I think this time around, yeah, it was. I was looking much more on the psych- psychological angle, and and what else? What else? I think. I, I suppose we have. We haven't. So, do you want to discuss the ending? Yeah, let's talk about the ending because all of that stuff goes down, and yeah, it's very plausible what happens to Childs that he. We do, it ties in with what we've seen in the film. There's a bit where we see him, 
run he off. Waves, he runs yeah. off. He's like, and then he's not seen until the very end. But at this stage in the film, and us as well, we're just like, no, no it's clearly it's, him. It's clearly it's, him. But is it? I mean, is it? Is it that he ran after Blair, got lost in the snow, and has just found his way back? That's it is plausible. It is plausible. Um, it is no. I uh, no. I think that's the. That's genius what's of, so good. Yeah, I, I think that's the genius of this film. It's not, and people, and it, it's you know the the debate keeps on. I think it was. I sent you an article. I think it's even raging as recently as like a few months ago that Dean Cundy, the cinematographer, came out and said, oh, yeah, it's it's obviously um, Keith David because when I was lighting the scenes, I would reflect a bit of certain light in people's eyes when they were the thing. It was a subtle nod. And then <laughs> John Carpenter came out. His response was brilliantly brutal, considering he's worked with him quite a few times. He's like, yeah, he's full of shit, man. He doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> made it, you know, deliberately ambiguous. And they actually... Um, they talk about, I listened to the the commentary for, well, part of the commentary for this, especially for the last act, because it, it's widely regarded as one of the, one of the most uh, entertaining film commentaries because it's just Kurt and John Carpenter reminiscing and Kurt Russell just pissing himself laughing. I think they're having a few drinks as well. Um, but apparently it was, they were struggling with the idea for the ending and it was it was Kurt's suggestion to say, well, why don't they just... Why don't you make it a standoff that they just say, let's just... Why does it have to die? Because like, yeah, well, like... they're probably saying we can't have another action film where the monster's killed and the guy walks away or because like, or he just dies. Well, what would be more interesting? Well, no, I think one of the original endings that was written was that it revealed that they were both infected and then it, 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 like it, it, they, it froze and then it cut to the following spring and they were rescued by a rescue team and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, thanks for saving us. Can't wait to have a hot meal or something like that. And it just sort of left with that sort of we're all we're all screwed. And even John Carpenter was like, no, that's just too bleak. Yeah, they were mulling over. Well, do we make it obvious that, is, that that Childs is the thing? Is is McCready? Is is that the twist that, you know, the hero's be, been taken over? And I remember watching it first time around saying, thinking, could it be Kurt? Could it be him? Yeah. But yeah, it was it was Kurt Russell's idea to say, well, let's let's keep it ambiguous that they're just going to sit it out and and see what happens. And obviously, yeah, I think they do just both freeze to death. And that the fact is that neither of them are. But yeah, I think that's the interesting part of this. Everyone's got a different take on it. And I mean, I'm sure it was done before and it's obviously been done a lot of times since. But it's much better than the other horror trope that we're both aware of where it ends and it's like the monster's hand moves with the eyes open, you know. Yeah, or something pops out the snow. (laughs) Yeah, it's much more up there in the likes of, you know, is, uh, what what, is it, cult, whatever, sorry, is... um, Christopher Nolan's films, you know, he's done some... Oh, the the yeah, the spinning top in Inception. The spinning top, is he actually in a dream? Did Batman really drop a bomb or is he on holiday with Michael Michael Caine again? Um, And maybe Anne Hathaway, but we would know. But it's... I was just, uh, I think I recently watched, uh, but a lot of films do it well. Yeah. But it's, and a lot of films kind of phone it in. I think I recently watched um, Mithrigan, Megan. Oh, okay. That, that's That's got one, like which I felt was just like a bit cheap. Um, so like, okay. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, some I, films I, do I, it I, well. I... Some fil- films don't do it as well. But this, because they give it an entire scene, they give it some, they give it some uh, heft. Yeah, for me, really works, and the way he offers yeah. in the bottle, you know, it's yeah. like you're gonna drink, and yeah, I'm not getting drunk here all by myself, Mister Alien friend, or are you? Well, again, yeah, there's another fan theory that that's actually one of the Molotov cocktails, and it's a test to see if he drinks it and he doesn't realize it's gasoline. That yeah. it, it'll be a, a telltale sign, you know. All oh, right, it, so there's a lot of fan theories about this film. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's that's it for me. Is there anything else you would like to talk about on the thing? Um, well, let's. Uh, I think it, we we there's there's definitely a few things to talk about. Are we going? Are we going? Are we going to features? Are going uh, into- no, no. I think uh, the final no. thing is we we need to talk about the the film's re- um, reception because it came out the same summer as Blade Runner and it was a massive flop. It was 
and it was it got really it wasn't just a, a flop with audiences it was uh, everyone ripped into it the reviewers didn't like it as well everyone thought that the ghoul was over the top the story was boring et came out around the same time and just devoured the box office but yeah john carpenter says i've got a good quote from him here he says um i take every failure hard the one I took the hardest was the thing. My career would have been different if it had been a big hit. The movie was hated, even by science fiction fans. They thought I had betrayed some kind of trust and the piling on was insane. Even the movie's original director, Christian Nyby, was dissing me. <laughs> so, wow. It, um, yeah, and it, it's an interesting thing, the fact that obviously Carpenter would go on and make more films and uh, is, you know, still, you know, still doing stuff, bless him, even though he's not as directing as much these days. But it, it's a, a big coulda, woulda, shoulda, you know, had this film been the hit it should have been, what would have happened to his career? Because I say this was a big studio film and I think uh, Big Trouble in Little China was medium-sized budget, but I don't think he really got back to those. He always kept the budgets fairly small, and was fairly independent afterwards. But obviously the film has, you know, fortunately been reappraised over the years. And now it's, you know, it's a, it's featured in a lot of the best, you know, horror movies lists, the best movies of all time. And yeah, as, as Charlie and I have both said, it's probably our favorite horror film, even though obviously it's, it's, you know, a bit of sci-fi as well. Obviously we're working our way through John Carpenter's filmography as we're doing this podcast, but it's yeah, definitely my my favorite John Carpenter. I just think it's where he's obviously in his sweet spot, and I can understand why he must have been so upset with it being badly received because it's probably his. If you look back at all of his work, it's probably where he was m- doing the best job on the stuff that was most important to him. You know, yeah. if you look at Halloween and you look at Big Trouble in Little China, and you've got this. Um, so yeah, I think uh, a, an amazing director. But anybody in the business will 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 say. Everybody would agree that he is, without a shadow of a doubt, one of you know one of the best movie directors of of his of his age. Yeah. So, uh, okay, well, nothing else for me to say, buddy. Should we move on to some features with some coulda, woulda, shoulda? Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. So, George, we've got we've got Jeff, we've got Celine. I think it's them, or it could just be thing versions of them, but it's time for coulda, woulda, shoulda. I going to say, I think there's only one Jeff Goldblum. I think even the thing would struggle to replicate Jeff. But anyway, coulda, woulda, Whereas shoulda. Celine is clearly from another planet. <laughs> <laughs> clearly, clearly. Um, so for, for the uninitiated, coulda, woulda, shoulda is when George enlightens us into the Actors and sometimes directors who were considered for these films, but for whatever reason did not get selected, did not make the cut. So, George, The Thing, sorry, John Carpenter's The Thing. Who have we got? So before it was John Carpenter's The Thing, I said, I mentioned uh, in the production chat that there were a few other directors considered. So I think before John Carpenter, there was uh, Toby Hooper, who was the man behind Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Poltergeist, uh, though it's rumoured that that's actually Steven Spielberg. Uh, he worked on a few drafts, and apparently I think that one of his drafts, it was going to be set like water-based. It was like more of a, a Moby right. Dick type, type thing. And you know, John Carpenter's like, it wasn't anything to do with a shapeshifter. John Landis, we, his name came up earlier in the chat. We were talking about American Werewolf in London, so his name was thrown into the mix. Uh, also, Walter Hill, he of The Warriors and 48 Hours fame. And Sam Peckinpah, who's the man who did uh, The Wild Bunch and lots of other sort of violent, western type films. So they were all in the director's chair before John Carpenter came on board. However, I was also talking about the fact that Kurt Russell was consulting with John Carpenter before he was cast about potential actors. And there were some really interesting actors who the studio were considering, Charlie. Uh, Is it the the usual suspects? It is the usual suspects, and you'll be delighted... When I tell you I'm not a thing, I know I'm human. I'm just scared of ghosts. <laughs> it's pretty spooky. 
so yes, none other than our favorite Christopher Walken was considered. Also, but he's uh, so hot. He's so hot. He was so hot. This was would have been around, you know, just after Deer Hunter, and so Oscar nominated. So yeah, Walken was hot property, but also a very reliable actor emerging in the the late seventies, early eighties. That would go on to work with John Carpenter in Starman. Is none other than Jeff Bridges. Um, so- Starman. That's the David Bowie link. I'm thinking back to View to a Kill now. I can do Bowie. Of course I can. <laughs> And then finally, we have everyone's favorite hobo. God damn it, I'm Nick Nolte. God damn it, you can put me in the Mandalorian, but don't really put me in the Mandalorian. That's <laughs> a, it's one of us. God damn it, I think I've spoken. <laughs> Nick Nolte would be good with that gruff paranoia. Yeah. Um, Christopher Walken, you would just immediately think he was a thing, wouldn't you? With that it, hair. It, it's him. It's him. It's, <laughs> it's definitely it's him. him. There's only <laughs> one of us is going to crack. <laughs> I can't really say for myself, <laughs> but one of us, <laughs> Childs, <laughs> I, was to, I was trying to follow uh, Braille. <laughs> no, anyway, it would just, it would be. Wait, imagine if he was doing the blood test, you know, just with those eyes, the Walken eyes. But um, I, I just can't wait for the day when we we can just cut and paste Christopher Walken in with AI into every fucking film. Oh, we we will be that YouTube channel. <laughs> that, you that'll know. be us. Yeah. That'll be us. So it's View to a Kill, uh huh, and everybody is Christopher Walken <laughs> apart from James Bond, who is still Roger Moore <laughs> and Grace Jones. There's only one Grace Jones as well. Yeah. So, yes, wow. um, Walk and Vision coming to YouTube uh, in 2025. That's so, why I love this feature. I love this feature. It's almost, it's almost like could a walk and should it. You know, it's like we're going to have to get him in the jingle because well, he's popping up again and again. <laughs> well, it's it's funny because you always try and sandwich him in there like, oh, Christopher Walken surely was considered. I'm like, no, no. no. But this time, yes. <laughs> yes. Not no. A famous performer. Yeah. So there you have it. Cannoli. Okay. Uh, that is coulda, woulda, shoulda. We haven't done it for a while, but um, shall we do some suspicious spin-offs? We've talked about a few in this already. We talked about there was a game. And you mentioned yeah, it was a prequel. So yeah. start maybe start with the, what came first, the prequel, I, get, I take it? No, no, the game. So the game came out, uh, I say, I think it must have been 2003, I'm going to take a stab at, because I think I remember Adam playing it second year of, of uni for me. So that was 2003. And yeah, so the film, uh, so the game is a, a sequel and pretty much picks up directly off uh it's a it's you know it's at a team a military team arriving to investigate yeah like an alien's version yeah Yeah. and it it's only i think halfway through the game that it reveals i I can't remember what happens to childs in in the game but mccready is i think he's still alive and they've they've captured him but he's not the thing and they're interrogating him so yeah that was a that was a sequel to the film, and bizarrely, I um, I know one of the guys that you know through my my current job um, who worked on that game, and they actually got as far as working on a sequel to that game as well, and they were working up some really weird and wonderful creature creations uh, for for the sequel, but sadly that that game got cancelled. Um, but before we get to the the prequel, which I think is 2011, there was, I think it was around the same time as the game, it was definitely mid-noughties, there was a, um, a script written by uh, a protégé of Frank Darabont called The Return of the Thing, and it was going to be sci-fi channel, we're going to do like a two-part miniseries, so... Sci-Fi Channel that had uh, during that time, you know, obviously TV was the the TV miniseries were quite big. So Sci-Fi had done the a Dune series. They did the Battlestar Galactica remake, which then turned into you know a several series thing. So there was actually some decent money, and there's a brilliant podcast 
the best movies never made where they they talk to the di- uh, the writer about it and it's it's a, a real shame that it never happened because it sounds fascinating it's the best way of describing it and they say this in the podcast it's basically what aliens is to alien that 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 concept that it's the russians pick up the thing and start testing on it and then they're flying for some reason they're flying over america i think to transport someone back from antarctica and he starts having a heart attack and the plane crashes in small town new mexico like in in this desert little town and just starts infecting the whole town and it's a complete like paranoia thing of they've got all these different characters being a tv series and it's who's it infected who's next and there's this russian scientist that's a bit like you know um what's his face donald pleasance from halloween going no you've got to stop it it's gonna get out of control and it is that sort of escalation of it's infecting all the animals and i think there's even a scene where a guy's like making an omelet and cracking eggs and when he gets to like the third egg it turns into a thing so it's brilliant it's like anything can be a thing and yeah as i say it's a a real shame that um it never got past the sort of the scripting stage i can't it's been a while since i listened to it so i can't remember why it didn't make it to screen or the small screen but um i'll put a link in the show notes um or i'll put it on on the social channels for for one to to listen to because it is i say a really interesting uh listen and an interesting story um but yeah there's finally the the prequel so have you not seen it i was gonna say i haven't seen it and as i always said george is it any good <laughs> it is interesting it is good it's just not different enough the fact is it's a bit of an uh, odd just a follow-up question uh sorry because it, it was joined um is kurt russell in it sadly not sadly not mic, um, mic drop I'm out of here. I'm out of here. Um, so yeah, it's a bit of an odd one because it's it's a prequel, but it's clearly trying to be a bit of a remake. And they call they they just call it the thing, which just makes it even more confusing. So is this uh, the Swedish bunch? Norwegians. Whatever. So yes, it's it's all the Norwegian uh base, but for for reasons for, for box office audience reasons, they invite an American scientist to the camp who uh, right. becomes the sort of the Ripley character. But yeah, it it is pretty much a bit of a, a remake, but it's also a prequel because it's yeah, it's basically you're seeing the exact same thing happen, but it's to the Norwegians. And it's quite clever in the fact that you don't i think it's uh so it's what's her face uh mary elizabeth uh weinstead winstead she's the scientist but it's got joel edgerton who's the basically the mccready wannabe but outside of that you don't really know who it's going to be and there are some nice little nods in the way it basically the you can tell there's a lot of love and attention uh that's gone into the film that they've gone like set up stuff that you see in the 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 John Carpenter one like the axe in in the the wall you see the guy who's slitting his wrist they 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 take all those key moments and they expand on them and even the thing that you know the the, the half melted half burnt thing you get to that halfway through the film so what about effects wise so that's where Better it gets or worse because I mean we're talking you're going up against Boating. Well, worse and it's again it's it's really it's a real shame and there's some good. Um, I'll try and dig out some links online because the I say the director was a huge fan of uh, of the original and wanted to be as faithful to it as possible and he said his approach was like I want to do it as practical as much practical as possible so it looks so it can stand side by side with the 1982 one and they got uh, a very talented special effects company it wasn't robo team but it was i think it was Am- amalgamated special effects or something like that and it looked amazing and then they showed it to the studio and they were like eh, looks a bit rubbery why don't we put some cgi on it to make it look cooler and it just ruins it and it's it's a real shame because you can see as i say this comparisons videos online where they've tried to make it more interesting by what the thing's doing, but it's clearly, it's clearly just rubbery CGI. And some of the practical effects that you do see is really impressive. 
so yeah it's it's a bit of a it's not a, a complete disaster and one of the coolest things is that is the ending it ends with the helicopter going out yeah, the guy loading up yeah. loading yeah. up the gun and i think someone has even done on youtube spliced them side by side and it's yeah. really well done so it works. um it, i would recommend so it's not, watch- it's not I, I will get around to watching it then from what you tell me yeah, I, I I do. Well, I did have a copy of it and I was going to lend it to you, but then I lent someone else who has lost it, who won't be named. It's definitely, it's an interesting watch. If you're a fan of the film, I say it's not, it's no, it's it's never going to be close to, you know, obviously we've talked about how good the, the 1982 film is, but it's an interesting companion piece. Okay. Joel Egerton, he's not the guy in Avatar, is he? No. No, that's uh, Sam. Sam Worth- Worth- Worthingless. Worthless. Uh, yeah, Joel doesn't Edgerton's... make a good or a bad film, just makes lots of films. Joel uh, Edgerton is also an Aussie and a bearded Aussie and looks similar, but I think he has a bit more talent and a bit more range than Sam Worthington. I've seen, I've seen him in more things, Joel Edgerton. What have I seen him in? Oh, no, he's in, um, well, he's in that film about the two fighters with Tom Warrior. Hardy. Warrior and he's yeah, you know, he's a good actor. He's decent. Yeah, I, I rate him. Okay, brother. Is there anything else? Um it's Halloween. Is there anything else that we need to talk about when it comes to the thing or horror type movies that we cover on the podcast? Uh no, I just want to say obviously I'm glad we finally got around to doing it. Our favorite horror movie. Uh, I don't know where we're going to go from here. Obviously, there there will be other... Where do we go now? Where do we go? Time will tell. But if uh, I you know, always put it out to the listeners, if there are any classic 80s or 90s horror movies out there that you think Charlie and I be brave and, and, and check out if we haven't seen, let us know in the comments. Uh, obviously, we've done a few horror films. We've done some horror comedies like Beetlejuice and, uh, well, Ghostbusters, I suppose, is a horror comedy, but we've also done Scream, done Thing. So, we could yeah. just, if we if we ever run out, though, George, we can just start doing films that are so bad it's terrifying. <laughs> yes, I mean, there's well, there's, there's plenty of old movies, uh, you know, the the old horror movies. There's the Hammer horrors, so yeah, there's there's plenty of horrors that. Um, and I'm sure, yeah, there's there's some of the like Friday the Thirteenth and, Fr- and Nightmare on Elm Streets that. You know, just the the uh, they haven't got Rob Bottin on, and the effects just don't hold up as well, and are just a bit laughable. So they may be worth, uh, you know, a, a venture at further down the line. Yeah, no, but I I really enjoyed watching this film. I always enjoy watching this film, and I can't wait to watch it again with you because just to have somebody to laugh at when just those special effects go nuts and the noise and somebody's head being bitten off by a three-headed monster that's come out of nowhere and gory blood everywhere. It was... We should try and do the, the, the prequel and, and uh, you know, back to back and, and it, it may be somewhere in a snowy location. Yeah. When we're skiing, that, that could yeah. be fun. <laughs> Have a few drinks, see what happens. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so uh, as you've heard us mention a few times, we, we are doing the old revelations, the films that passed us by. We didn't get to the thing until we were uh, we weren't living at home anymore. This was what I what for me anyway. And there are other films that fall into that category. So we will continue doing revelations to separate it from the 80s and 90s that we cover on the usual monthly episode. But if you like what you're hearing here and you want to hear more, check it out on Patreon. We've got bonus episodes. Um, we're going to have some more juicy goodies coming your way, some more extras. So if you're a patron subscriber already, there is going to be more to look forward to in the future. Uh, I also know for sure that we have, uh, I'm not sure what we're doing for Christmas or I'm not allowed to tell you because, because George will have to kill me, but I can tell you that I think we've got some Quentin Tarantino goodiness coming up in the months to come. Um, so George, anything else, uh, you want to mention before we sign off? For a Christmas movie, can we do the one that's got Kurt Russell as Santa Claus? Those aren't bad films. I've had to the... suffer both of those. And Goldie Horn turns up. Exactly. Uh, I've watched them lots of times. And with I've, our I, children. <laughs> is, is it is it wrong to be attracted to Santa Claus? Anyway. Um, um, my daughter's already got designs on marrying Santa Claus. When she found out he was responsible for all the presents, she's like, I'm going to marry him. She's Especially old. if he looks like Kurt Russell. I think it was probably that film that pushed her over the edge. She's only um, human. Or is she? Yeah. Um, So, (laughs) or is she the thing? Um, thing? 
Or are you the thing? Uh, yeah. So, oh my God, I'm in such. A, I, I say I'm loving the the Peter K. Dick book, which I recommend to anyone Philip, who likes. Phil, Philip K. Dick, not Peter K. Dick. Philip, what? No, how do you know that's not his name? In a parallel universe, that could have been his name. Good, Philip good K. Point. Dick, uh, Ubik. That's a bit of a revelation. George and I have read most of um, Philip K. Dick's work. Uh, obviously, Philip K. Dick is responsible for Minority Report, Blade Runner. What else? Total Recall. Total Recall. This guy is a legend. So if you do like your books or your audio books, highly recommend Ubik. Okay, so stay in touch with us on RetroRamble.blog, on all the social channels, um, wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you're listening to this. Uh, Leave us a review if you enjoy what you're hearing. Recommend us to a friend. Or as we say many times, send us your Apple logins and we'll do it for you. Exactly. Uh, so no wonderful thank you for listening uh for this episode i have been charlie mcgee and you can tell by the special glint in my eyes i've been george mcgee or has he i'm just, just not I? sure anybody and we will see you next time bye-bye bye-bye